And good morning, everyone. Oh, there we go. You're all awake. That's good. Um, it's, it's great to be back here. It's been about a year, I think, since I last preached at Calvary. We were in True Life, actually, at the, when we were meeting there, if you remember back then. Uh, so, you know, excuse me if I'm a little rusty. If you hear any creaking or cracking, it's probably me just shaking the, the rust off. Uh, but I am very excited to be back here and to bring God's word to you all this morning. And as we get started this morning, I do want to ask you a question. Have you ever read the book or even watched the 1995 Disney movie on Tom Sawyer or Huck and Finn? Uh, it was one of my favorite movies, actually. Sorry, the movie was called Tom and Huck. There we go. Uh, I loved it as a kid. But in that story and in that movie, Tom was required to paint or whitewash his aunt's fence. And so in the scene, it shows a beautiful day. Probably, probably like today, I can see the sun shining out there now. So let's say it's like today, and it's just what any young boy wants to be doing, painting a fence on a beautiful day. I mean, who, who, you know, if you have a beautiful day, who's, that's the number one thing you want to be doing is painting your fence. <laughs> okay, that's what I thought. Not many, if, if any at all. So, of course, this is not what he wants to be doing. But in the scene and in the book as it goes on, Tom's friends pass by, and the first friend passed by and says, well, I mean, you've got, you know, a real day cut up for you. Like, you must hate yourself right now, basically. And Tom has this ingenious idea where he acts like he's having a, a whole lot of fun. He says, no, like, I don't get to do this very often. Why, should, why shouldn't I enjoy it? This, this is great. It's been entrusted to me. It's an honor to do this. So what Tom does after a few more exchanges is he convinces this boy that he's having much more fun whitewashing this fence than if he were free to do what he wanted to do that day. And so the boy, wanting to take part, says, <clears throat> come on, Tom, give me, give me one stroke. Let me, let me try this one time. And Tom says, no, I, I, pro- I couldn't possibly do it. I've been entrusted with this. This is, this is my duty. And he says, well... What if I give you this? And he pulls out one of his treasures. It could be a marble. could be like the bottom of a Coke glass or something you would look through. Really cool for a kid. And so he trades his treasure for Tom to then whitewash his fence. And as we go on, Tom then has almost like a small army of boys painting this fence for him. And meanwhile, he sits back with all these treasures he has now, and he's free. He's tricked all these boys to trade up some of their possessions to have fun whitewashing this fence. And in the story, I believe it says that there are three coats of paint on there before they're done. <laughs> um, it, it's, but it's, it sounds silly. We laugh at it. But in a similar way, that's what we're reading in Galatians. You see, in Antioch, the believers were going back to the ways of the Jews. They had added on requirements of salvation and how to properly live, according to, live for God according to the laws of Moses. For the Gentile believers, a lot of these practices would have been new to them, but adding to the gospel at all is the same as going back to slavery. They had traded their freedom and paid to paint someone else's fence, thinking it would somehow add to their faith or complete it. In the same way, the boys were tricked into whitewashing the fence, giving up their freedom, giving up one of their treasures, and actually paying to give up their freedom. The truth of the matter and the whole point of this passage is being known by God is enough and superior to the things of this world. That's the whole point of this small passage. And what Paul has gotten up to this point through the last you know, four and a half or three and a half chapters, basically. 
Having come to faith, the believers in in the Galatian church were adding to the gospel in order to think that they could better please God. They could gain more of his favor. And when we start the book, Paul says to the Galatians in chapter 1, verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He, He can't believe what they're doing. They were influenced by the Judaizers who insisted that Gentile Christians needed to adopt the Jewish way of life in order to be truly made right with God. They were going back to a former way of life they deemed better, or at least they thought would improve on the current faith. Paul has given them a list up to this point. In, chapters, in chapter 1, verses 11 24, he said, this is why I'm an apostle. This is why you can trust my word. In chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, he showed that his gospel is from God. And up to now, he has consistently argued and pointed them to a gospel of grace and promise rather than law and works. Curtis preached just a few weeks ago on moving from slavery to sonship and how amazing it is that we can actually go to God as Father. And that's an important thing we need to keep in mind here of how, what got us to this point. And now we see Paul showing the Galatians once more what they are actually giving up if they return back this way. He states at the end of the message that he's afraid he may have lived, labored in vain over them. He's very discouraged by what's happening here. And after making his case for salvation by grace alone through faith alone, he's now showing them that they have a great inheritance as sons, but they're just willing to give it all up. He reminds them that prior to being called in Christ, they were worshiping so-called gods. If you, re- if you read along with us this past month in 1 Corinthians, you would have seen Paul talking about this pagan gods. 1 Corinthians 8.4 says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. Also, 1 Corinthians 10.19-20 says, What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Simply put, idol worship of pagan gods is demonic. And this is what Paul is saying here. It's the same thing as you were going back to worshiping these gods, what you're doing right now. They were enslaved to falsehood. And so here's my first point for you this morning, coming from verse 8. Adding to the gospel means living like a slave. You see, formerly, they and us were enslaved to those that are not gods. The Gentile believers would have offered sacrifices while we were enslaved to the practices of this world. It's the same thing. We might have have actually offered food to idols, but we were still enslaved to the things of this world. I mean, look how Ephesians 2, 1 to 2 describes us. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's us. We were formerly slaves of this world, but we are now heirs through Jesus if you trust in him. But what does it mean to add to the gospel? If it's something we shouldn't do, then what does it look like to add to the gospel? 
Great questions. Thanks for asking. Remember that the Galatians were being told, again, that they needed to be circumcised in order to be truly made right with God. That having faith in Jesus wasn't quite enough. There was another extra step to get there. So I would say that anything we believe that can give us a better standing with God outside of Jesus is adding to the gospel. Also, anything we believe or think we need outside of Jesus' sacrifice is adding to the gospel. When we live like this, we are saying that Jesus' sacrifice wasn't enough to reconcile us with God. That's what we're saying when we add anything to the gospel, when we live that way. To add to the gospel is to live like a slave even though you're a son or daughter of God. And there's a reason why so many people quote C.S. Lewis on this matter, and I'm just going to do it again. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. It's the same as having the freedom to enjoy your day, but giving that up and paying to paint a fence, thinking that will give you more freedom. It's the same thing. You see, we can very much still be Christians and live like slaves. We see in verse 10 that the Galatians had already begun to observe days, months, seasons, and years. Richard Longnecker believes that this meant that they had already begun to observe new moons, festivals like the Festival of Booths, and years like the Year of Jubilee, but doing it in a way to obtain more favor with God. This is what he says. While not as yet submitting to circumcision, Gentile Christians of Galatia seem to have begun to observe the weekly Jewish Sabbaths, the annual Jewish festivals, and the Jewish High Holy Days, all as they evidently were led to believe by the Judaizers as a means of bringing their Christian faith to completion. This was their great error. They thought there was more to completing their faith. Even though they were heirs through Christ, they were now enslaving themselves to extra practices and rituals. Instead of living in the freedom they now had as Christians, they were adding more restrictions onto their faith. It's the same as if they had gone back to idol worship. Now, you might be sat here this morning and be like, well, listen, I'm good. I'm not observing these days or months or seasons or years. And you're right. But I wouldn't be so sure that we're not adding to the gospel, that we're not even living as slaves as Christians. I wouldn't be so sure about that. You see, this is a warning passage for the Galatians and us. This is not about not celebrating days like Christmas or Easter. That's not what this is about. But it is oddly reminiscent of believing in karma while you're a Christian. It is kind of like holding on to lucky practices or even believing in Murphy's Law. You know, bad things happen in threes, right? I've never met uh, probably a more superstitious bunch than Newfoundlanders. (laughs) And I'm one of them. I mean, goodness, my grandmother, God bless her, she hated crows. Hated crows. I mean, there's a saying that if a crow flies by your window, it means that someone is going to die or something bad is going to happen to someone. And so she would actually cross the crows as they flew by her window. And that was supposed to help her somehow. 
Um, but actually, two weeks before my grandfather died, two crows hit her window. And uh, my grandmother said, oh my, something's going bad. Someone's going to die soon. Um, and two weeks later, my grandfather died. And my mother even finds herself now not liking crows as soon as there's a crow in the yard. And she, over the years, she's crossed them out, but she stopped recently. But we all laugh at it now. It's how she was raised. I mean, look back on Newfoundland's history. Um, shops were closed on Sundays. You couldn't moose hunt on Sundays. When that changed, didn't some of us probably look on, down on people who would go shopping on Sunday? You know, didn't we think that was a horrible thing to do? You know, how dare they? You know, I'm, a, I'm a much better Christian than they are. That's living like a slave. You're adding extra conditions onto the gospel. You're not believing that Jesus is simply enough or even that God is sovereign when we talk about luck. See, we can add all kinds of stuff into our lives that doesn't align with the gospel. And Curtis said this in his sermon. There are a number of ways we continue to live like slaves even when we're free. For instance, do you think that simply the act of attending church makes you better with God? That that's what makes you right with God? Or does it earn you more favor in God's eyes? Do you think reading scripture or praying more does all that and makes you more right with God? What about dressing a specific way in church or the songs that we sing? How about even how you view others of a different social standing? Do you thank God that I'm a Christian and now I have, you know, I, I have this status. I look down at other people and like, you know, thankfully I'm a Christian so I don't have to live like that. Because these things that we add that actually add restrictions and cause us to be actually living like slaves. Now, don't get me wrong. Attending church, praying, reading our Bible, all of that is what we should be doing. But what matters is the motive with which you do it. Are you doing it to make yourself more appealing to God or to others? Are you doing it to make yourself better than someone else? Does it make you feel better? And like, I'm not like them. I, I can go outside with my head held high today. Because if that's your posture, you're doing it wrong. You see, in doing that, we assume the worst of others while demanding they assume the best of us. Our whole reason for doing these things is to worship and come to know the Savior who loves us, not to fill our own boots or hold our heads high. We're simply beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. Paul has a deep concern for this Galatian church here because the standards we impose on ourselves and others in relation to our standing with God can actually have us living like slaves when we're actually free. We are free from the power of sin and free to live holy lives for Christ. We are free from the burden of trying to please and appease God. The Galatians and us, we have the best possible thing in this life, a relationship with God, but that doesn't seem to be enough for them. There were good intentions of following the Jewish laws. They were doing this to the one true God this time. But good intentions don't always have good results. Even though following the Jewish laws and celebrations would have been new to the Gentile believers, and as I said, even though they were devoted to the one true God this time, they were wrong. And Paul says, you are doing the same thing as if you were worshiping false idols again. 
This is why Paul spent the last chapter and a half talking about salvation by grace alone through faith alone. We all need to realize that being known by God far exceeds anything in this world. And point number two, and this is a bit of a long one, so if you're taking notes, I'll repeat it for you. Adding to the gospel means trading a relationship with God for the worthless things of this world. Adding to the gospel means trading a relationship with God for the worthless things of this world. I mean, come on, it makes no sense for us to live like slaves and we're actually children of God, when we're actually sons and daughters. In doing so, we're actually trading that relationship for what Paul calls the worthless and weak things of the world. Verse 9, it says, But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? It doesn't make sense. We have a relationship with God, not that we have come to know him, but that we have become known by him. You see, he is the initiator of our salvation. Hebrews 12.2 says that he is the author and perfecter of our faith. We are known by the creator, the Alpha and Omega. We are known by him. Mankind spends all of their life looking for purpose, looking for meaning, and it's all found right here at the foot of the cross where Jesus died in our place. To even think about turning back if it were possible for those who are truly saved to turn back is absolutely absurd. Who would want to turn away from a relationship with God when he doesn't require you to pray at certain times in the day to be right with him? When he doesn't require you to eat specific foods to make him happy? Or that you don't have to make sacrifices time and time again when you sin? Who would want to give up that relationship that allows you to go to God as father? I mean, just think, if you're a child, you, we were all children once. We all had fathers. And some of us have children now. If you as a father or your father would look at you and you were to say, what have you done today to make me love you? How would that feel? Or if a child came up to you and you're a father and the child said, here, here, daddy, I made this today. Do you love me? Do you love me now? That would actually gut me as a father. I would just put that aside and look at Raylan or Isaac and say, listen, that's not why I, I always love you. And my children have done nothing to deserve that love simply for the fact of being my children. I mean, what other religion gives us this access to God? To add anything else to the gospel that you would claim gives you more favor with God or that completes your salvation outside of Jesus is just ludicrous. You're out to lunch, gone off the deep end, off your rocker, take your pick. We would be saying that Jesus is not good enough for us. There is nothing we can claim for our salvation, and there is nothing we can do to aid it. And here's why it's absurd. Let me give you a few passages. Philippians 2, 8 to 11. Have this mind among yourselves 
which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And having been found, having being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the death of, on the cross. Sorry, being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name as above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And again, Ephesians 1, 3 to 10. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making us known to the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Calvary, this is, this is what we're talking about right here. This is what Paul is saying you would be leaving. We didn't do anything to deserve it. It's a relationship that has bought you with a price. The life of God's own son. The very son who we just read about, who humbled himself and died a criminal's death so that you might live and be saved. A relationship with the one whose name is above every other name. That means there is no one greater than him. It's a relationship with the one who chose us while we were still sinners before we were even born. A relationship with the one who has lavished us with his grace and forgiveness. This is the God we go to. Being known by God is enough. Full stop. And doesn't that sound crazy to want to walk away from that? To think that there's something better than that? Doesn't that kind of faith sound better than anything we can find in the world? We don't need to add anything of ourselves to our salvation. In fact, if we add anything of ourselves, we actually diminish it. I mean, what is there in this world that can equal this, thing, this type of relationship? Paul describes things in the world as worthless and weak. Is that really what we want to hinge our bets on? Why would we add to the gospel? I mean, even if there are temptation to make the gospel seem more relevant or appealing to those around us. You know, do I really have to talk about bloodshed so much? Do I really have to talk about how gross sin is? Do we really believe the gospel has the power as it is now to save us and those around us? Do we believe that? Or do we feel like we've got to fancy it up or add a bit more gusto to it? Or leave out certain parts so in case we don't offend anyone? Because it does have the power to save me, to save you, to save this city. 
when Jesus sent out his disciples to go into the towns, he sent them with a walking staff and the good news. That's it, and they were a success. When Paul went to the Corinthians, he preached in his weakness and trembling, believing in the power of the gospel to produce results. And there were. See, painting a fence just doesn't compare to having the freedom to enjoy your day. Imagine having the freedom to do your favorite thing, hiking, kayaking, barbecuing, spending time with your family, whatever it may be. But then you make all these plans and you're like, you know what? I'm going to pay and give up my most valuable position to paint this fence and give that all up. All your plans are gone to waste and you're just going to paint this fence while giving up you know, your family heirloom or an antique or something. It, doesn't, it just doesn't make sense why we would do that kind of thing. And to give up that freedom we have in Christ because we don't have to make him happy. Don't settle for anything less than the freedom that God has already given you. I get it. We can be tired sometimes and feel like sometimes it's a hassle. Sometimes, do I have to read my Bible today? Do I really have time? I've got other things I need to do. I'm busy. I'm wore out. But listen, he's the one who gives you rest. He's the one that you need to go to when you're tired, you're wore out. And I encourage you to think about how he has first loved you, how he's first loved me. We might even feel like there's, you know, maybe there's more to get from God. We hold all these revival services. Maybe we can just get one more blessing from God. He's already given you everything. There is no more. Go to God in the fullness of the grace that he has given you. There was one more thing that we needed to address here this morning. Can we actually turn back and lose our salvation? I would say no. You can't. Paul's concern is that the Galatians are on track that might bring destruction, more so to those who are not genuine believers. Which brings us to point number three. Adding to the gospel will discourage those who love you. Paul is writing this letter... He gives no hint that these people have lost their salvation. He gives no hint of that. But if there is no fruit in the church, then it's likely that they wouldn't have been saved. It's the greatest fear of any pastor or church planter. It's not that you can lose your salvation, but if you do not produce fruit consistent with the gospel and the character of Christ, then it should cause you to wonder and question. Commentator Timothy George says this, However, real apostasy as opposed to a temporary backsliding is possible only for those who have never been genuinely converted. Paul had good reason to believe that this was not the case with his, with his Galatian converts, whom he called brothers and my dear children. This letter is written out of a genuine concern for brothers and sisters who are going down a bad path. It's not a conceited concern when Paul says, I'm afraid I may have labored in vain. He's not saying, oh no, I've lost this part of my resume. What are people going to think about me now? No, he's concerned for his brothers and sisters. He wants this church to grow and flourish. He wants them to grow in their relationship with God and their knowledge of God. And it's the same for any good pastor or elder or even brother and sister. When we disciple each other, we want each other to grow in faith. Now, your pastors and elders might do it through counseling, through encouragement, preaching the word, or even through a rebuke. 
but the intention is it to see you grow and develop and be mature in your faith. Paul is grieved here for the church, and we shouldn't be living in a way that causes others to be discouraged or be grieving over us. Seeking to please God outside of Christ is wrong and is not the gospel. When Christ died on the cross, he said, it is finished. That's it. There was nothing else to add. There was nothing else to accomplish. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him sin who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God. And listen, I know what it's like to rest in my own strength. I know what it's like to think I'm enough. To be doing so well, only to come to the end of yourself and fall miserably short. I know what it's like to feel like you're doing a fantastic job and not realizing you haven't turned to God. And then when you fall short, you fall flat on your face. What it's like to have a job in the house you want and to have it all taken away. I've been there. To be the reason others become discouraged. I've been that person. But let me tell you that God is good. If there's a chance that these believers are not actual Christians, then can we know if we're saved? Or are we left to wonder if our salvation is true? And in those times, I did wonder. I mean, 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Christ Jesus is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? So how do I test myself? How do we find out if our faith is genuine? Well, are you living like Jesus, and are you becoming more like him? Are you grieved when you sin? Are you exampling the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, goodness, and self-control. Are they evident in your life? Because they're called fruits of the Spirit. They're not things you can produce on your own. They're the things that God, through his Holy Spirit, grows in you. I mean, read the word, be in prayer, be in fellowship with other believers, but do it because you want to know more about God, not because you want to be better in someone else's eyes or your own. And know this, that the fruit do not justify you before God. We don't get to go to God and say, look how loving I am now. Look how kind I've become. Look how patient I am. No, as John Piper said, it is not the fruit that justify you. The tree of faith is a good tree. The fruit is evidence that the tree is good. And don't miss what Paul's doing here. He's assuming that you're going to have a positive answer to this test. If you check and see, check your life to see if you're more like Christ, if you've won over sins in your life, and if there's fruit in your life, then Paul expects the answer to be a resounding yes. I am in Christ. I'm a Christian. He had saved me. 2 Corinthians 7, 8 to 9. For even if I grieved you with my letter, I don't regret it. 
And if I regretted it, since I saw that the letter grieved you, yet only for a while, I now rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because your grief led to repentance. For you were grieved as God willed so that you didn't experience any loss from us. It's okay to feel like you've made a mistake. It's okay to realize, you know what, I haven't been living as if I'm free in Christ. It's okay to go to God when you've messed up. That's the one that we should go to in the first place. If you believe in Jesus that he is the son of God, that he died in your place on the cross, taking your sin upon himself and bearing your punishment, and that he rose again after three days, then you are saved. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. You'll find yourself becoming more discontent over the sin in your life, and you will eventually grow more in love with the Savior who has died for you, who has paid for you to be redeemed to God. Which is why it's absurd to even think about adding to the gospel. Because again, being known by God is enough and is superior to the things of this world. And remember, there's a big difference between starting to backslide and actually turn your back on Christ. You're always going to have sin in your life, but that doesn't mean you're not a Christian. We will struggle, but we have been given power over the sin in our lives. It's already been defeated, so that's why we don't give up. Christ has already paid the price. Christianity isn't about being perfect, but about running to the one who is perfect with all of your imperfections and sin. Timothy George reminds us about this passage that still within the wide, wider context of this letter, this bleak expression must be placed over and against Paul's overall confidence and hope that the Galatians could still be won back from the confusion and danger that now beset them. He had full hope that they would turn back around and come back to a right and correct faith in Jesus. And this morning, we all need to check ourselves of where we are whether it be Christians or whether you even believe in Jesus, whether you trust him. Every single one of us need to check ourselves and ask how we've been living. Have you allowed other ideas to creep into your understanding of the gospel? Do you, do you hold to karma? Do you hold to Murphy's Law? Do you think that just because you're here, you have more favor with God than someone who missed church today? Or are you living with your eyes on Christ? As Pastor Steve said earlier, having the pleasure of confessing your sin, walking with other believers, and trusting that Jesus is enough. If you think you're on a path that could lead to destruction, that doesn't mean you're not a Christian. What it does mean that it's not too late for you to turn back and come back to the gospel, to have a correct faith in Jesus. If our salvation was so trivial that we could lose it, then what does that say about the grace of God? What does it say about his mercy? See, we never outgrow the gospel. You will never be enough. I will never be enough. We might want to be, but we're always going to fall short. Jesus is enough. When you fail, when you mess up, when you find yourself trying to get on God's good side, 
Jesus is still enough. He's not shaking his head at you. He's welcoming you back with open arms. We don't need to look anywhere else when a king of kings, the name above all names, the bread of life, the living water, the alpha and omega is calling us to him and has provided the way for us to be reconciled with God. Where else is there to go? So this morning, I'm asking you, all of us, pray, check yourselves. Ask God, God, where am I? God, convict me when I sin, when I try to do things in my own strength. When I feel like I'm enough, even ask God to bring you to the end of yourself so you know that he is enough. Because he is Let's pray this morning. Father, I want to thank you for your gospel. I want to thank you for your truth, for the opportunity to be up here and to give this message. Oh, God, would you make this as real to my heart as you would make it to theirs? Lord, would we be aware of the ways that we might add to the gospel, that we might think there are other things outside of you that we need? Oh, God, we walk with you today and this week. Would your Holy Spirit convict us, lead us, draw us closer to you. When we go to you in prayer, when we attend these services and give you worship and praise, would we not do it as a way to earn more favor, but do it in a way that we rejoice in you, that we rejoice in what you've done for us, and that you have given us the good news and you have made, us, made a way for us to be made right with you. We don't have to stress about being made right in your eyes. You have already made us right if we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts. So Father, would you be with my brothers and sisters today as we leave this place? Would you help us, as your word says, be a light to this city, O God? And may our words and actions be salt to those around us. I ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.